1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Following Through the Cracks. Today, I'm talking with Jennifer Block. She is an independent journalist who writes frequently about health, gender, and conflict of interest in medicine. Her articles and commentary have appeared in the Washington Post magazine, Newsweek, The Cut, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Pacific Standard, The Baffler, and many other outlets. Today, we're discussing her book, Everything Below the Waste Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So what inspired you to write this book?
2: This book really grew out of my first book, Pushed, which is about the medicalization of maternity care in the United States. And, you know, when I wrote that, I was um, a pretty young, naive journalist and was just shocked that um, many of the routine interventions in maternity care are not based on evidence um, and are leading many patients down the road to an unnecessary cesarean. And, you know, I also looked at maternity care from a, a feminist lens of, you know, we, we fight for the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. Do we have the right to choose how we give birth, who attends us, where we give birth? Um, and so when I, when I came out of that Uh, experience, and when I came out of writing that book and um, speaking about that book, I looked up and realized that these themes uh, extend to many other areas of women's health, where um, the routine care isn't based on evidence, where we are undermining the physiology, um, and where women's desires and values uh, and choices are not being respected.
1: So, um, one of the things that that I um, am aware of, actually, just from doing this show, I, I wouldn't have known otherwise, was the, the science based on women's health, um, or just the science in general on health, um, isn't often studied on women. So, um, can you know where does that leave women in in the healthcare system if most studies are done on on you know white men?
2: Yeah, that's our that's our unfortunate legacy. That um, you know, it wasn't even until the 90s that the NIH required that studies include women, Um, and you know, so the joke is that even the lab rats are male a lot of the time, and you know, this points to you know what we know about bodies and the um, effects of drugs and the impacts of treatments. You know, a lot of that is. It doesn't, you know, the dosages aren't changed for us, but the research was done on men. So we've known about, you know, bias in medicine for a long time. And we've known, um, we've had the data that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed, having a heart attack, pretty much in any situation. We've known that they've been underrepresented in research. Um, I was also interested in this phenomenon of, of overtreatment. So not, not just where we're not represented and where we're being undertreated, but where um, we're getting a glut of, of treatment and surgery um, that's harming us. Um,
1: Which is true. And, you know, I, 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 I wrote down a few things from your book, and actually, I took a picture of <laughs> a quote from your book, that, and I sent it to a friend. Um, it was in 1969, we put a man on the moon. In 1982, we invented the internet. In 1998, we discovered the full anatomy of the clitoris. Which I yeah, thought was. Yeah, I think that's
2: a quote, actually, from um, from Huffington Post. Right? They they have a great yeah. site. Um about clitoracy, <laughs> literacy <laughs> of the clitoris. But, you know, it's funny um, because <clears throat> the anatomy was really, you know, this is a story, the clitoris, and I think, you know, it's emblematic of women's health in general. The clitoris is a story of knowledge being found and lost and found again and lost again and found. So, um, you know, the, the Huffington Post reported that it took until 1998, but the truth is that in the 1970s, um, the feminist health activists out in Los Angeles were writing a book called A New View of a Woman's Body that was published, I think, in 1982, ultimately. Um, and they were searching for the true anatomy of the clitoris. And they went to a medical library and looked at all these textbooks and found all these contradictions. There, some of the books didn't mention the clitoris at all. Some of them just identified it at the, as this small nub um, but then they looked further back in history, and they found that the, the texts from the 1700s and even 1800s were more accurate. But they actually, the anatomists who were just, you know, dissecting bodies and drawing what they saw, um, actually saw this anatomy much more clearly. And so those, those feminists in the, in the 70s um, and early 80s, drew pictures based on those texts and also based on their own investigations of their their own bodies. Um, and we have that, you know, that representation of the larger clitoris that kind of looks like a grasshopper. Um, and if you can go to the clitoris website on having a post to see it. Um, but it's fascinating because there, it, it means that our values impact what we know to be the truth. You know, what's in textbooks, what doctors learn and what mm-hmm. informs How they do surgery.
1: Well, and, 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 you know, this to, to all women would, would seem like something really important that we should know, but it, it shows where we've stood in healthcare. care. I mean, this is one example, and we could probably film many shows of, of what's happened in, you know, women's history and medicine and that we haven't been valued. Um, you know, a lot in, in your book, you talk about how women are, um, as you said in the beginning as well, um, too much surgery, too, too much care which is actually um, from from what I gather from your book you know hysterectomies and just removing organs and and you know um, to me this is some the last should be the last resort you know why can't we try to get the organ healthy what you know why instead of a hysterectomy why not look at what's causing the symptoms and the problems but instead of doing that with women we just remove it and I I feel like we wouldn't do that to men in that same situation situation.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's always my question. Um, you know, would we tolerate this in men? And, you know, it's interesting The people wonder, you know, why don't we have a male pill? And the reason we don't have a male pill is because the studies of uh, male hormonal contraceptives have, have mm-hmm. valued their sexuality very highly. And, and the studies are really centered around what the sexual impacts are, and they're high, and so that's why we don't have a product because men are not going to tolerate those kind of side effects. When you look at the his, the, the research on the the female hormonal contraceptives, those those questions haven't been asked or have hardly been asked, um, and yet presumably they have similar impacts. And the the, the um, you know min- minimal studies that we do have on that suggest that hormonal contraception does have those impacts. And for hysterectomy as well, yeah, we have, our rate in the United States is about twice the rate of European countries, Um, and maybe you actually know the rate in Canada. Um, But we, yes, we have this tendency to take out this organ. We cut into or remove the uterus more than any other organ, regardless of of sex in the U.S., so c-sections and hysterectomies. And um, so many people I've talked to and so many physicians have insisted to me that, you know, there is no impact on sexual function. Um, whereas I've talked to plenty of people who have had hysterectomies who have had an impact on their sexual function. And again, this is an area where the questions haven't been asked by the researchers. There's very little research looking long term at the impacts of hysterectomies. Uh, On quality of life and on women's sex lives.
1: Well, and I wonder if if women's sex lives aren't being valued as much because you can um for a, for a man they still have to have function, a woman can have less desire and still have sex. Um and and you know traditionally our desires weren't really that important, to, you know, way back when we had to do what our husband wanted, um which isn't the case anymore. Um but you know, I remember when they were talking about a Viagra for women and there's controversy around that and you know, I thought this is great because there are a lot of women who really want to have the same desire as their partner and they don't, but there was controversy around it. And 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 that to me was baffling, but I think I, I hear too many stories and voices in, in clinic to, to not know that this, there is a need, but I, people were laughing about it on the radio. So this shows culturally where we're, we're valuing a woman's sex drive. It's actually not often about us.
2: Right. Right. And this is, you know, this is one of the themes that I'm, um, that I'm constantly teasing out in this book is about, you know, how much we value women's sexuality and how much we as women value our own organs and physiology. Um, because we can, you know, look at, at the medical system and at medicine for their role in, in not valuing our organs, you know, um, oh, you're, 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 you're 45, you've had your kids. Well, we can just, you know, we can just do a hysterectomy. no big deal. Um, you don't need that organ anymore. You know, there's that attitude, but then there's also our attitude um, and our willingness to go in for these surgeries. Um, and our, you know, our willingness to, um, to submit to, you know, to take these recommendations and to sort of hand over, uh, our agency, mm-hmm
1: um, yeah you know w- one thing I also find is before people get to that point I mean I've had women who are begging their their doctors for a hysterectomy because they've been so uncomfortable for so long so there is a, a reason why women get to that point and I think the other part of of that coin is that they're not getting help until they're that desperate you know I've I've um, yes. you know I've had a lot of women's but you know the younger they are the worse it is for them to get help they're told I had a woman who had just had a baby told by a pharmacist that women her age don't get hormone problems so that wasn't her issue and, and you know I'm like okay well there's postpartum plus you're in your 30s and and you're a woman you can have hormone problems no matter what your age is and so that and yeah. it was of course a man who said it to her and I thought this was um, the, one of the very first times I had experienced this kind of conversation, and and I was baffled that somebody, especially in, you know, a healthcare kind of system would say that to somebody, this isn't your problem, you need to look at something else, maybe some medication. and And, and I think that's how we're often treated. I try to get women to get their hormones tested, and their doctors often refuse because they're not sick enough, or there's just not an issue. Even if we think they have something like endometriosis, they can't get the care that they need until they push for a very long time. And I think this is why women end up in that situation where they're like, yes, please, let's have a hysterectomy because I can't get help otherwise.
2: Definitely. I I, I very much agree. I talked to so many um, experts who put it this way, that, that so many of these um, diseases are in a blind spot in
3: yeah.
2: women's health, especially in endometriosis. But yeah, any of the PCOS um, hormonal imbalances, the the typical thing seems to be that um, you know it, it's either brushed off or the pill is offered. A hormonal contraceptive is offered as a way to quote unquote regulate the cycle, which may help or or may not help the symptoms, but doesn't. Uh, address the underlying disease process. So one of the things that really surprised me was that endometriosis is more and more being considered an autoimmune disorder, right? That it's the systemic um,
4: mm-hmm. disease
2: that uh, predicts um, heart disease, um, maybe predicts cancer, and is definitely a big predictor of infertility. And so um, women often present with pain and They're prescribed the pill and they go for years, maybe 10 years, maybe more without a diagnosis, and then they come around to wanting to have children and find that, you know, they go off the the contraceptive, their symptoms come back with a force, they can't get pregnant, they get this diagnosis, and they're basically told that they're, you know, they're they're not going to be able to get pregnant. Um, and so the experts I talk to who are doing this really, you know, collaborative, innovative work, pairing up with immunologists and nutritionists and physical therapists um, and and specialized surgeons talk about how the, the typical surgical treatment that is being offered to endometriosis sufferers isn't even the right right treatment, but, it, you know, the laser surgery is going to create more scar tissue. What they really need is the cold excision surgery, which only, you know, maybe a dozen, maybe a few years ago they said it's a dozen, maybe it's a few more surgeons now do. Um, and whether or not those patients can get to those surgeons and whether it's covered by insurance, there's so many barriers. Um, so, yeah, there's there are these blind spots where um, it's just not part of typical um, ob-gyn care and then the specialists are really you know the reproductive endocrinologists are doing fertility medicine so i talked to a lot of women who felt like they just they had nowhere to go Mm
5: -hmm.
2: Um, i definitely agree
1: i want to talk about this more we're going to take a quick break we're talking today with jennifer block and we're discussing her book everything below the waist we'll be back shortly
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
6: What is your level of sexual expertise? Want to find something new? Listen for Sisters of Sexuality every week on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There's no judgment here. And every topic is safe and sex positive, so we'll explore them together. It's time to push your sexual boundaries and try some new experiences with your hosts, Taylor Sparks and Parish Michelle Blair. You won't want to miss a single show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel.
5: Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness.
3: Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina and fitness talking with tremaine brings it all to you host tremaine ellis along with her husband and co-host david ellis will offer support advice guidance and motivation to keep you in your best shape both physically and mentally talking with tremaine can be heard live every wednesday at 6 p.m eastern time and 3 pacific on the voice america health and wellness channel
7: can you truly expand your possibilities beyond what your normal capabilities are? It's very possible when you can know more, do more, and be more. Tune in each week to Shift Happens with host Karen Weary and co hosts Ida Serena Lee and Jessica Durrell. The world is waiting for you to show off your unique gifts. It starts with healing yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Once the scars of our past are gone, we can truly begin to. Shine. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America
4: Health and Wellness.
1: My co-host Oliver is a 7-pound chihuahua cross and he sits through all my shows with great puppy patience. He was super happy when I came home with Carbona Pet Stain and Odor Remover, which is an oxy-powered formula with active foam technology and is engineered to permanently remove pet stains and odor. Carbona is a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning expertise into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. Although he tries his best, Oliver sometimes does have accidents. I pulled out the Carbona Pet Cleaner and voila, we were stain-free and clean. It was easy to use, pet-safe, and hassle-free. The built-in 2-in-1 brush tackles stains at the surface and deep into the carpet fibers. It is now my other best friend. Use code FTTC at Carbona.com to save 20%. Happy cleaning. Hi everybody welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today I'm talking with Jennifer Block and we're discussing her book Everything Below the Waist. Jennifer before uh, the break you talked about how women were having trouble getting help from their doctors um, which is definitely something I've experienced personally um, and um, I talk to people on a daily basis where this has happened but can you um, just let us know a little bit about what's going on there?
2: Well, we were talking specifically about endometriosis and yeah. PCOS and um, hormonal pro- uh, you know, problems, right?
1: generally about women's health I, I find you know especially the gynecological issues but even just you know knowing that women have more chronic pain and more autoimmune diseases and we know that it takes them longer to get diagnosed I find that you know they're getting frustrated with the system I mean, we know these facts so it, and it hasn't changed on the end of, of the patient doctor relationship where the doctor knows that women are experiencing this that part I don't think has changed yet for them to change their response when a woman goes in and says, I don't feel good.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one one topic I looked at was the the um, problem of pelvic pain, which affects so many people, like one in four women at some point in their lives. And, um, you know, we're just so behind on, on researching this and understanding what's going on. And so, you know, physicians um, don't know what to do about it. The most you know, the, the most effective ones, I think, understand that they don't know the answers and they, you know, try to um, be with their patients on their journey to find some relief. So they, you know, refer out to pelvic floor physical therapists, which don't exist everywhere. You know, this is a, this is a growing field. Um, but hopefully the, you know, the good physicians look out for, for those people to refer to. Um, and they are open to working with nutritionists and, um, you know, psychologists and, uh, you know, looking at it as as something that, you know, we don't know the answers to. Um, But, you know, the other thing that I um, was told by multiple OBGYNs was that theirs is a profession that has been stretched very thin. Um, So in the United States, since the 90s, OBGYNs, um, can be reimbursed as primary care providers, and this this affected what is taught in their residencies um, because now as as a primary care provider that that's a whole other uh, piece of the pie. You know, you're yeah. that's, It's like a, it's a job in and of itself, right? It's a, it's a yeah. um, profession in and of itself. So that was added to their plate, um, and and to look back at the history you know, GYN really grew from surgery and OB really grew from a takeover of midwifery. And the two were separate for many years. It wasn't until around 1950 that the two combined. Um, And I'm really interested in in what impact this had on training and skill because what these OB-GYNs, and there aren't too many who want to talk about this, but um, they are talking about it uh, within the community a bit and it's that every other surgical specialty goes through a totally different training process. They train as general surgeons for a couple of years and then they focus on their specialty. They get a five-year residency of solid surgical training. OBGYN is a four-year residency and it's a lot. It's OB, it's um, GYN, like regular quote-unquote well women care, it's pelvic surgery, it's high-risk OB, it's the, the hormone piece, the endocrinology piece of it, um, and then add on to that primary care. And so there's this question that some are asking quietly, um, but which I'm repeating because I think it's important for people to know, um, and that is, you know, is is surgical skill suffering? Are, are OBGYNs getting enough training? And this is, um, you know, it circles back to what we were talking about earlier with hysterectomy being offered as, you know, the only solution. And that by the time women get to that point, you know, they haven't been offered other solutions. They're bleeding, they're in pain, um, they have endometriosis, they, you know, they're at the end of their rope. And so I, I think we need to be asking, you know, what is the relationship there between these failures, and these blind spots, and the, the load on the OBGYN field?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it,
1: I, I think not only the load on them, but the, the lack of information. Because a lot of, you know, as we touched on, w- women's issues, there aren't a lot of studies on. So endometriosis, the only diagnosis we have is a is a surgery, uh, exploratory surgery, to see if it's there. We don't have a blood test, which is why, like in Canada, it, it's really difficult to get that. You have to be really, really uncomfortable and push for a long time because it costs money. And and you know if you can if you can keep the symptoms under control with the pill, which is what they would do after the surgery anyway, then they're going to do that. And 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 you know, it, and this happens with a lot of you know women's conditions. If we're just talking about the pelvic conditions, interstitial cystitis, and dysmenorrhea, and PCOS, and endometriosis, et cetera, et cetera, I find that the, these women are are hitting a wall, and it's not just a wall in. in that the doctors don't want to care, but they can't because the information isn't there for them to care for them. You know, and, and, and I always have this vision because I've been on, um, you know, Facebook groups where women are so frustrated and they're so lost. So I hear all these little voices saying, this isn't fair. I can't get help. And and I wish that those voices were louder, not in these private groups, so that we could be spurned to help them. Because as you said, one out of four women has pelvic pain at some point in their life. This is a significant amount of our population. That needs this
2: help, right? Right, and in the U.S., you know, we have the problem of our very broken for-profit system. So, you know, we have the problem of people having no coverage or
3: yeah. even limited
2: coverage, um, and the pressures on physicians to see more patients, and you know, the the. Um, documentation that has to go on now where, you know, the, the cliche is that your doctor is facing the computer away from you typing while you, while you talk and try to connect. Yeah. Um, and so our system is just so broken in so many ways and it's affecting everyone. Um, but, I, but yes, I think that women have these specific issues that, um, you know, are just so, they, they can be so debilitating and affecting our quality of life. And You know, I wrote this book because we're having all these important conversations right now about how our power is being undermined on the basis of sex or race or circumstance. And I think this is part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Because how, you know, how if if we're not healthy, if we're not feeling okay, then our power in society is, is undermined.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I agree with that because we, and, and I think a lot of women don't feel like they have that power. They don't have the energy, you know, they, they don't even have power in their doctor's office. Um, from, I actually learned this from another show I did last year, um, that, it might be important to take someone with you to an appointment. And um, I coach a lot of women to do this just so that they can have either a witness to um, a conversation that doesn't go well, or they do find that they're treated differently, especially if they take a man with them. They've got If backup. they take a man. Yeah. 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 Yes. I don't and
2: then, know if you saw the um, yeah. John Oliver that spent 20 minutes on bias and, and yeah. medicine and, had Wanda Sykes come on and talk about her experience of being given ibuprofen, I think, following her double mastectomy, um, yeah, and she—that's going to help she on Larry <laughs> David. Right? yeah she, she brought on Larry David you know if, if you need a white guy who, who can come with you to your appointment he's he's
1: there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right but the, 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 unfortunately this is, is is the truth and Wanda Sykes fell in two categories because she was a woman and she's black so she she was given less pain pain medication and I think the studies show that that is something that does happen um, as if black women you know have less pain or something um, but you know I have family. And since I've coached my patients to do this, that the the results are different and they come back and tell me that, you know, they got further in that appointment with their husband than they did in the five previous to that when, you know, they couldn't get anywhere with their doctor and then they bring a man in with them who's who just basically sits there, has no idea really what's happening probably and just it kind of concurs and says, yep. And then suddenly they get Uh, appointments and tests and, and things looked into and finally figure out what's going on. And it it shouldn't have to be that dramatic. But unfortunately, this is where we are right
2: now. Yeah, you know, and I think that, um, you know, the, the, the goal of the women's movement was, the, the broad goal was to get more women into men's spaces. And so in terms of healthcare, you know, we had this, this feminist health movement that I talked about in the beginning of our call, um, but the the, the the broader women's movement was really interested in in not in the body and in female physiology, but in getting women into men's spaces and getting women into medical school and getting women into this what was then a very male dominated profession. And that if we just got more women in, you know, things would be better. Um, and I think we're realizing now, um, not just in, in the medical realm, but in our culture <laughs> at large, we have a president who is um, locally misogynist, um, mm-hmm. brags about assaulting women, you know? Mm-hmm. This is our yeah. president right now. Yes. We've had Me Too. Um, yeah. we, we've just, you know, I think a lot of the gains that we thought we'd made, we're realizing oh, we still live in a very sexist society full of sexual violence. Um, And how could this not be, you know, still entrenched in medicine? So even though we have, you know, even though uh, more than half of uh, med students are women now and something like 85% of OBGYN residents are women, you know, it's still a system that has a very ugly history that's tied to patriarchy and white supremacy and misogyny. And just putting our people in that system... Doesn't necessarily change it. Um, well, I think we're still dealing with this.
1: I, I wonder if you know we've got women in the system but I wonder if the training has changed so that they're learning more about women's bodies and what to do with them or if the training is very similar to what it was when it was also men I mean the, the change has to also come from what they're learning what the train. if they don't tell people in school and doctors yeah. in school that you know women actually experience more autoimmune diseases and it's going to take them 4 to 10 doctors to get that diagnosed let's change that they're not going to Change it because they don't know, and you and I know because we've read these books and interviewed people. But but it, it's got to it's got to be something that that is understood by the entire system for it to change.
2: Yeah, and medicine is notoriously slow in adapting to you know research and to its culture changing. It's it's notoriously slow, um, and I think. You know, we can look at maternity care, which I know very deeply because my first book is all about it. But you know, we're still—you know—we've had decades now, decades of research, um, the gold standard randomized controlled trials, um, telling us that it, it, the episiotomy um, should never have been used routinely. You know, this, this, this idea that if you cut the perineum in labor that it would prevent further tears. You know, women intuitively knew that was wrong. (laughs) Anyone who's ever sewn knows that 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 doesn't make any sense. Um, And it took, you know, it took, it took research. uh, It took decades to prove that it was wrong. But now we know for sure that this is something that should only be used in dire emergencies, but it's, it should not be routine at all. And we still have hospitals in the U.S. where we see like 25%, 33% episiotomy rates. So it, it takes a long time to change things. And um Again, I think we have to like ask these deeper questions about the, the culture because it's even harder to change a culture, but where is the value? Uh, You know, what, what, how much are we valuing those organs if we're so willing to cut them in spite of the evidence?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, especially when cutting it, of course, can change a, a woman's life and cause permanent damage. Um, and, you know, childbirth is natural. If it can be done that way, we should avoid those. Either, I mean, some C-sections can be life-saving, but then they've become a, a quick fix. We don't have time to go into that right now. I'm um, I, Sorry, I went down that road right before our break, but we are going to take a break. Um, I'm talking today with uh, Jennifer Block, and um, we're discussing her book, Everything Below the Waist. We'll be back shortly.
4: Become our friend on Facebook, post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
6: What is your level of sexual expertise? Want to find something new? Listen for Sisters of Sexuality every week on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There's no judgment here, and every topic is safe and sex positive, so we'll explore them together. It's time to push your sexual boundaries and try some new experiences with your hosts, Taylor Sparks and Parish Michelle Blair. You won't want to miss a single show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel.
5: Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness.
3: Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
7: Can you truly expand your possibilities beyond what your normal capabilities are? It's very possible when you can know more, do more, and be more. Tune in each week to Shift Happens with host Karin Weary and co-hosts Ida Serena Lee and Jessica Durrell. The world is waiting for you to show off your unique gifts. It starts with healing yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Once the scars of our past are gone, we can truly begin to shine. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Jennifer Block, and we're discussing her book, Everything Below the Waist: Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. So Jennifer, before the, the break, we were kind of diving into um, C-sections and and uh, episiotomies and that kind of thing. Um, what What's kind of the scoop on that? I mean, a lot of people think C-sections are, I mean, there was a fad, I don't know if it's still going on, where people would book their C-section and have their birth that way. Um, what What's kind of going on there? And why is is this something we shouldn't be choosing?
2: (laughs) And and go, you got five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know how much of a fad it was, to be truly honest. You know, there was um, my research, you know, the the physicians I talked to, yes, there were, you know, pockets of the country where physicians were telling me, like, you know, one out of 50 patients was coming in asking for a C-section. But when I talked to patients in the Midwest, and, you know, not the, not the glamorous, um, coast, uh, they like had never heard of that. So, you know, I think that, um, that narrative was really more sexy to the media and also kind of like something that, that physicians, um, were happy to engage with because again, our system does not support physiological birth very well, you know, um, I used to work in restaurants, and the way I think about um, someone trying to have a physiologic birth in a typical U.S. hospital is that they're going into a restaurant and sitting down and drinking the free water and eating the free bread and not ordering anything off the menu. And if you're waiting tables, you do not like that family who's doing that because you're not going to get a tip, right? Um, so in our in our fee for service system, uh, you know, if you're going into a hospital and you're trying to move around and you're trying to avoid an epidural and avoid pitocin and avoid the interventions that um, often lead down the road to a cesarean, you know, you're you don't belong there. So. Um, so it's it was it was a convenient narrative to to talk about oh well women want this you know should we be doing it so now the now the conversation has definitely changed in the U S because we have a rising maternal death rate here rising um, not only has it not budged it is rising and it's rising among black women especially um, and there is a relationship to cesareans because one of the main reasons for maternal death is hemorrhage and. In this country, it is difficult to get a vaginal birth after cesarean. It's nearly impossible to get a a planned vaginal breech birth. Those are automatic cesareans. And a lot of women pregnant with twins typically are told it's going to be a C-section as well. So um, we set a lot of women up for a first-time cesarean, and then we deny them the option of a vaginal birth. And we have these repeat cesareans, and we see these complications of the scar, the placenta embedding into the scar, causing catastrophic hemorrhage at the time of delivery, and um, we're seeing this maternal death rate. So the conversation we're now having is not about you know, whether women should be able to demand a, you know, have a C-section on demand. It's really about the fact that this is a public health crisis and that we need to do something about it. Um, and yet, it's, uh, we're not being very bold. The, the, um, the U.S. sets these healthy people goals, and the healthy people goal for 2020 was to bring the primary cesarean rate down to 23.9%, which is you know, worse than our uh, you know, worst-performing hospitals uh, in the 1980s when, before this trend really took off. So it's like, it's not, it's not a very bold goal. Um, it's still assuming that all the breech babies are going to come out by cesarean. It's not really tackling the VBAC problem. Um, and meanwhile, you know, this is not just an issue of overtreatment, but this is really an issue of human rights and consent. Because in every other scenario in medicine, you know, adult patients, Decide what happens to their bodies, whether or not they um, get a treatment, whether or not they are cut open in a surgery, and we seem to just be throwing that principle out the window with pregnant women, where we're just consigning women who have breech babies to a, a C-section. You know, telling women who are um, who've had a previous cesarean that they they're not allowed to have a vaginal birth at this hospital or with this practice, um, and we really haven't grappled with that.
1: You know it it was actually a hard chapter in your book to read i've I've heard stories like what you talked about, um but I find them really shocking. Um, my mother had three children with natural birth, and I was born at home and um the the birth stories are told every year on our birthdays. so I was aware I was aware that there was a difference with what my family told and what happens and I've heard stories over the years in practice but I still am shocked that this still happens. That women aren't given choice, and I think a lot of it comes down to fear, especially if it's your first child or you think something might happen. Um, you know, women know that the birth rates are high, so they're going to do what the doctor says, and it's hard to choose. But. You know sometimes it's a little more aggressive, and damage is done i mean you you told some very um, aggressive stories in your book, and you're right. it is about consent, and I think this is a place where doctors think that the consent isn't quite as necessary um, because you know they can cause fear in the woman and and make i don't know what what, what do you think? <laughs> you're the one that wrote the book, I guess. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I I think there's fear on all sides because I think that, you know, physicians fear malpractice suits. Um, It's been, you know, they're in a system where hospital administrators are scaring them with the specter of losing a suit. Um, Their risk management departments are telling them that they can't attend a vaginal breach birth or they can't attend VBAC. Um, and that's all coming from fear, fear that the hospital is going to get sued, fear that the physician is going to get sued, that they're going to lose their insurance, not be able to practice anymore. Um, it's not based on evidence, of course. Um, and, the, and the lawsuits, um, as one lawyer just um, very eloquently explained to me, <laughs> you know, those decisions aren't based on medical evidence. They're based on what, what the other lawsuits, how the other lawsuits were decided. It's very sort of... Um, closed system, like unscientific and closed system. Um, So there's fear on the practitioner side, and and it trickles down. You know, nurses fear the doctors, nurse midwives who are working in the hospital. You know, they're in a really tough spot because their model of care is to respect the woman's autonomy and to support the physiology, and yet they're not really autonomous in the United States like they are in Canada and Europe, um, they're operating under physician supervision most of the time if they're working in a hospital. So they're not really in control. Um, and for women, for patients, you know, yes, there is. I think our culture is just steeped in so much fear about childbirth. And and you know, it's fascinating to me that it's only been a hundred years. It's it's only been 100 years, a hundred years—a blip in human history—that. Birth is something that you have to do with medical technology under the care of a, you know, surgeon in a hospital to be safe. You know, we have this, this thinking that that's, that's true. Um, and that it's this scary, awful, painful thing. Um, it's only a hundred years because before that, this was, you know, under the domain of midwives. Um, and, you know, of course there wasn't surgery and antibiotics, but, they were doing a pretty good job from the time. You know, the the researchers who have gone back and looked at those records show that, that midwives actually did have a lot of expertise and they had skill and they, they, they attended birth um, as a physiologic event that women did upright, awake, eating and drinking supported by their aunties and, you know, the the other women Mm -hmm. in the community um, and the midwife. And it wasn't, there wasn't so much fear around it. Um, and now, you know, We in 100 years, it's completely flipped. It's something totally different. And and so, yes, I think it's, it's scary. And even if you are aware, maybe you're on Facebook groups, you know, and you are mm-hmm. aware of this alternative called midwifery or home birth, it's really hard to get it in some communities, yeah. in a lot of communities. even Even in New York City, we don't have a single birth center in Manhattan, um, we don't We don't even recognize the home birth midwife credential, the certified professional midwife credential in New York State. Um, and insurance, it's a, it's a struggle to get insurance to cover your home birth. Medicaid stopped paying anything reasonable for it. So if you're on Medicaid, you have to pay out of pocket on top of what Medicaid will reimburse. Um, it's really difficult. So to push back against that system um, takes a lot of fighting, a lot of work, it takes resources. Um, it takes a social su- support system it's really hard to to birth in a way that your you know your family doesn't approve of, that your friends don't approve of. People are telling you your baby might die, you know
7: <laughs> even yes. though you
2: know that even though you know that there's there's lots of research now on the safety around Um, birth outside the hospital, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to do that. So I think there's fear on all sides. Well, you can imagine,
1: I mean, my, my mom had two natural births at a hospital and then I was born at home and this is in the seventies. So it was even harder then, but it, it was just something that she really wanted and there was fear. So the first two were in a hospital and then, um, I was the last. So they felt more comfortable to, to have the birth the way they wanted, but that's still rare today. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. And, um, you know, I, I do think it's that fear. What if something happens and so you're in a hospital, um, and then your right to choose um, is less. And like you said, it's the, the doctors. Um, midwives are actually covered here uh, by our health care, which is um, a big step forward, especially if you know um, what it's like here. We're not progressive usually in that, that kind of way. Um, and but you are still in a hospital and there's still a doctor there that will have a say over the the midwife from um, what I understand. I shouldn't say too much because I've not been in that situation. Um, but there's also, I think um, if we want to talk about the cultural perspective as well, Um, there's also the choice, as you said, with what your family thinks your birth plan should be and the choices that you should make there instead of what's right for you. There's a lot of uh, like parent shaming, mother shaming, um, you know, do things this way instead of doing things that are right for your body. And I think we've lost touch with that part of it.
2: Right. Well, and also like what we mean when we say, um, you know, a good outcome, like, you know, for women with complicated situations, um, they're not just interested in surviving. You know, like I've talked to women who have had two C-sections and, you know, they were so traumatic and they're so, um, they, they, the recovery, both physical and emotional and psychological, was so long um, and arduous that they just cannot they can't go through it again. They, they, they're pregnant again. They cannot do an, They cannot plan another C-section. Um, and so, you know, they do have a higher risk, a little bit higher risk. You know, they, they have a risk of um, a uterine rupture. They have a risk of the, the accreta that we were talking about. Um, but C-sections also have risks. We, we forget that sometimes when we're having this conversation about the risk of a vaginal birth after cesarean, um, that C-sections have real risks, but also we, we need to think about the values and the, the real life experience of the person in front of us. And if someone's saying, I, I, cannot, I cannot go through another surgery, um, you know, I won't be a, a good mother. I, I won't be, you know, my, my mental health will be in jeopardy, then I think mm-hmm. we have to listen to them and um, recognize that, you know, just merely surviving is not the goal. (laughs) It can't just, that can't just be the goal. Um, and the autonomy of the person in front of us has to be paramount. Um, and again, like that's, that's just routinely being, being, um, tossed aside. As someone said to me recently, you know, you're expected to just leave your autonomy at the door, at the doorstep of a hospital.
1: Yeah, well, I I agree with you on on that one, and you know I think this comes back to where we started the conversation of, you know, women's health and women's organs aren't treated with that respect. So if you know she has nerve pain or chronic pain coming out of that, it's not valued as much as if if it was i would guess in a, a man's situation but men aren't even in that situation you know it, it's more right. is she still alive okay well then you know here's some medication to cover up the nerve pain that was caused by your c sections plural and and off you go and and uh, it takes a long time to come back from from something like that
2: right and it you know it puts women more at risk for problems with um, you know, incontinence and pelvic floor prolapse and, you know, poor childbirth treatment can, can mean these really, you know, um, debilitating quality of life issues down the road that lead to more more intervention and more risky treatment. You know, so one of the other things I look at in the book is the disaster with pelvic um, mesh, with the transvaginal mm-hmm. mesh, mesh kits that have been marketed to physicians to take care of um, incontinence and pelvic floor prolapse and the controversy over the morselator device I guess mm-hmm. your listeners might have to Google that. I don't know. We have time to- <laughs> Well, they, we, we, they're um, going to have
1: to actually read your book. So this is a good, good place to end. <laughs> um, you do go into great detail about that, which I think is important. I think it's important to know um, the choices that we have if we're in those situations. And even if you're young, it, it could happen later. Um, so I'm going to, um, if anybody wants to read your book or if they need more information, how can they um, do so?
2: Yeah, the book is online. Um, you can find it at your favorite online retailer. Um, if you look at IndieBound, you can find it at your local bookstore, which I root for. Um, and you can follow me uh, at WritingBlock, the pun, Writing WritingBlock, um, <laughs> on Twitter, and Jenna, Jennifer Block, author, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and you can find my website as well, JenniferBlock.com.
1: Well, perfect. Jennifer, I want to thank you for joining me today. It was a great show. Thank you so much. My um, it, perfect. If you want more information about my story and what I went through on my journey back to health, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. And just thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day.